0: Hello everyone, my name's Viv and I'll be reading the Bible passage today. Um, it comes from Psalm 133 and if you're using the church Bibles, it's on page 970. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes it is as if the dew of hermon were falling on mount zion for there the lord bestows his blessing even life forevermore hey let's pray and then we'll get into god's word heavenly father thank you that you are a great and awesome god thank you for uh, what we've seen in this series that you are the god uh, who has made us in your image that you are the God who has forgiven us in Jesus, that you are the God who loves us. And we pray that this morning we would see what difference that makes. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week, uh, I don't know if you saw it, but Waleed uh, Ali came out with another video that sort of went viral on social media. So he's the guy from the project who won the gold and silver Logie uh, in the last couple of weeks. And his video sort of just went crazy on Facebook and social media. And his video was on milk. Right, who knew milk would go viral, but it did. And what he was saying in this video was that, basically, I won't go into the detail of it, but, but he was say, talking about how these two big companies are ripping off our dairy farmers. Right, and so they're charging less for milk and want to back pay over the last financial year and, and they're going to charge them for that. I don't fully know the detail of it, but as you're watching this video, like any of these videos, the, the big videos from these kind of guys, you always kind of get fired up. Right, You watch it and you think, what can I do about this? I don't want to let these big companies... There's no way in Australia these big companies should be ripping off the little guy. What can I do? But then you kind of realise, well, I'm just some guy in some suburb in Brisbane. There's nothing I can do. That is, until Waleed Ali tells us what we can do. Maybe that's why he won the Gold Logie, because he tells us what we can do. And so what can we do to stop this sort of outrageous thing that's happening with our dairy farmers? He says drink Australian, local Australian milk and eat more cheese, right? So, apparently, this afternoon, if instead of having people over for coffee and cake, you have people over for coffee and a cheese platter, we will be sticking it to the big companies ripping off our dairy farmers. That's what he said. That's the difference that we can make. But see, the thing is, when we watch any of these videos, like the, the big videos that go viral or, or anything that's sort of important information We kind of always need to know the answer to the question, what difference does it make, right? Because if we don't know what difference it makes, normally we just forget about it and nothing ends up changing. We need to know what difference we can make. And so we come to the end of a series here at Southside on true identity. And we really have to ask the question, what difference does all this stuff make? What difference does knowing who I am make in our church community? And so if you haven't been here the last few weeks, or or even if you have, it's been a bit disrupted with church camp and one and a few other things. If you haven't been, let me just catch you up on where we're at in this series. The first week we saw that God made us in his image. We are fearfully, wonderfully made. We looked at Psalm 139 and we saw how we are made for a relationship with God and with others, right? And we were introduced to this pyramid that a Christian counselor uh, talks about as our five key relationships. And we'll look at that a bit later in this talk. The next week we looked at Psalm 51. Remember that? We looked at David and Bathsheba and we saw how we are deeply sinful. David's not the only sinful guy. We are all deeply sinful, but in Jesus we're forgiven. Jesus paid the price, he absorbed the cost. Week three, we saw Asaph, when he was looking around to others to find his identity, he was falling apart. But when he looked up, when he looked to Christ, that was restored, he was restored. And then week four, last time around, we looked at Psalm 23 and saw how good it is knowing that God has my back in the good and bad. Right, That my status before God doesn't change. So, so the question is now, at the end of all this, what difference is it going to make? What difference is it going to make for us as a community, as a church, as the people of God? Well, if you have your Bibles there, have them open in Psalm 133. And we're going to kind of see what difference it makes. This is a psalm of a sense, which literally means it's a psalm going up. It's of David. And this is what he says. Verse 1. How good is... And pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. What difference does knowing who I am in Jesus make? Well, it should kind of mean that we dwell in unity. And this psalm is a really simple one. He basically says that when God's people live live together, it is a good thing. So in verse 1, when he's talking about the brothers, he's not really talking about you and your brothers. He's talking about God's people living together. And he says it's a good thing when God's people are living in unity. And, And to do that, he uses two illustrations two of really the weirdest illustrations that you could possibly pick. So the first one is about oil running down a beard. I, I don't think we would speak like that today if we're trying to illustrate our point. But trust me, if you were a Jew back in the day, you would be lapping this up and we'd know exactly what this means. And what he's saying here is it's a good thing, right? See, the oil on someone's head, it wasn't the Coles cheap sort of olive oil. It was a good smelling oil, right? And and so it's a good thing. And as it's flowing down and there's an abundance of it, it even goes down onto his collar, whatever that looks like. But But there's an abundance of it. So what he's saying there is it's not just good, it's really good. And because it's Aaron's beard... It's a holy thing, right? He was the priest, so this is a holy thing. And holy just means set apart, different, something we're not going to find in the world. So, so when God's people dwell together in unity, it's good, and it's holy. But then he uses another another illustration. He says it's like the Jew of Hermon falling on Mount Zion. And really what he's getting at there is just that it's refreshing. Now we wouldn't use that illustration today to say that something's refreshing. We wouldn't say like the Jew of Mount Kosciuszko falling somewhere in some place. We wouldn't do that. Maybe it's as refreshing as a cold shower on a hot day. Or eating a whole watermelon at a T20 game. Maybe that's the kind of refreshing that we're talking about here. And so he says when God's people dwell together in unity... It's a good thing. It's a holy thing. It's not something you're going to find anywhere else. And it's a refreshing thing. It's going to build you up. It's going to lift you up. It's a, a refreshing thing. Right? This is what he says. And, and what we know is that it's a good thing for God's community, for his church, but also for, for us individually. Right? So, so we've been introduced to this pyramid in this series. We, we've seen this kind of pyramid. It's our five key relationships that we have. Right? So when church, when the church corner is going well... It's good for me individually. It's good for me. It's good knowing that people have my back. It builds me up. It's good knowing that people are praying for me, that they're going after me, that they're caring for me. That is a good thing for me individually. But it's also a good thing when God's people are dwelling together as a church. Right? It's a good thing. It's a holy thing. It's a refreshing thing. So the question is for us, how come this isn't always our experience of church? Right? Like, I don't know if you, when you leave church every Sunday, you sing Psalm 133 in your car. I don't. Like, I don't feel like this all the time at church. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I love church. I love Southside. And I'm not just saying that because I'm paid to say that. Although that's sort of half. No, no. I'm not saying that because I'm paid to say that. I, I do love it. But what David's saying here in Psalm 133 is not always my experience of church, of God's people. Maybe we see pockets of it. And if you know that, if you've seen the pockets, if you've been in that, you might have left some church gatherings or growth group and gone, man, that was good and that was refreshing, but, but not all the time. Not all the time. So, so why not? Why not? And if this is the good and holy and refreshing thing, how do we get it? How can we get this so that our community together, so that God's people together is a good and holy and refreshing thing? I think we get it when we overcome two challenges, at least two challenges. The the first is that as we meet together, we're all just different, right? That's the first challenge that we face. We're all so different. There's no denying it. We don't meet here today being all from the same place at the same time. We're all so different. And so finding a good combination of different things can be actually pretty hard, right? Finding a good combination of different things can be hard. So when it comes to food, we know that there are some different things when they're put together are really good, right? So peanut butter and jam, it's a match made in heaven. Uh, Oreos and milk, it's a good thing. Avocado and Vegemite, trust me, it's a good thing when that's put together. That is a good combination. But not, everything that, not every food that's added together is a good thing. So I came across 24 of the most horrendous kind of vintage recipes this week and there were some crackers on there and so i've got two of where we've got different things put together that just looks terrible the first one is a thing called fizzy milk right this is when you add seven up to milk this was legitimately in a cookbook at some point in history right this was a good thing and look maybe this is the answer to our milk crisis i don't know maybe if we got into this a bit more we would deal with the problems I don't really know, but but looking at that, that is disgusting. In fact, to drink it, you've got to get past the curdling milk because it literally does curdle. Right, so that's the first combination that just doesn't work. But I reckon there's a better one, and that's this one. Spam and banana fritters. I don't know whose idea it was to put dog food with banana fritters, but someone had that idea and someone thought that it would be good. Someone thought, yeah, this will work. Put these two terrible things together. But it's never going to work. And I'm really sorry if you like spam, but that in itself is a bad combination. It's like pork and ham blended up and put together. It's just not going to work. Sometimes church feels more like spam and banana fritters than it does anything else. Right, sometimes when we look around and see different people, we look at it and go, that's just not going to work. Right? We, we look at people who have different opinions to us, different views to us, just think differently to us. And we look at it and go, that just can't work. When you put everyone in a room and tell them to get along, it's just not going to work. And so some people leave church because of differences. Right? They look around and go, this is too hard. People are too different. And so I'm, I'm going to move on. Right, I'm going to move. And they leave church, they go find another church, or they just go not stop going to church. So that's the first challenge that we've got to overcome, the fact that we're all different. But the second challenge we've got to overcome is a bigger challenge, and it's really the bigger problem. It's that we're all sinful. Right, so, so week two of this series, we looked at Psalm 51, and if you weren't there, I'll give you what it was. That, that what we looked at that week is I'm sinful, but so are you. And we're all deeply broken. And so the biggest problem that we face as a church in getting to Psalm 133, this ideal, this unity, the goodness, the refreshingness, is the fact that I am deeply sinful. Now, I've been reading a book called What Did You Expect? It's a marriage book by a guy called Paul Tripp. And in that book, it's gold. But in that book, he says that sin is essentially selfishness. So if you boil sin back, if you get to what sin really is, essentially it's selfishness. Now, I think this makes sense, right? Anytime that I ever get into an argument with Elizabeth, I know it's because I'm selfish. I've put myself first. I've put myself first now. I haven't been looking out for her. I haven't been caring for her. And so that's why the argument starts, because I'm selfish, but, but regardless of that relationship, it's true of every other relationship too. The, the only other, other times that relationships break is because I'm selfish. But even big picture, if we think about this, the reason we don't do what God asks us to do, the good stuff he says to do or the bad stuff he tells us not to do, is because ultimately I'm putting me first. I'm selfish. I, I want to do what I want to do, so I'm not going to do what God wants me to do. And so sin is essentially selfish, and we are all selfish, we're all sinful and so we're all selfish. And so what this does to our relationships is brutal, right? So, so let's think about our five key relationships. What our selfishness does to our relationships is brutal. It destroys all of them. So the first one with God up vertically, selfishness destroys that. Selfishness puts me first and says, God, you're not God. I, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And so it, it breaks that relationship. But even practically, let's think about this horizontally. Sin is what destroys. Selfishness is what breaks our perfect relationship with our family. right? And, and our friends, that's what breaks it. It's not because we don't get along, we're different. It's because I'm selfish. So I don't know how it plays out in your family. But in mine, the, the, times that I, the times that we have friction in our family is because I can't be bothered giving them a call. I can't be bothered talking to them. I can't be bothered hanging out with them. I can't be bothered investing in my family. And so, so I, I take things too personally. And so because I'm selfish, my relationship with my family and friends breaks. When we work around the corners, selfishness is what stops us from going to counsellors. Right? It's what stops us. It's what stops us. It, it, it stops us going, I've got this. I don't need to go to a counsellor because I can figure this out. I can fix this myself doesn't matter what the cost is on my family or friends or work sin selfishness stops me from seeing a counselor and in australia that's our culture right we don't need to go to anyone to get help we've got this i've got this selfishness is what destroys our relationships at work and uni it's what stops me i mean i've been there it stops me from asking questions on how they're going stops me from investing in them outside of work time because that's That's home time. That's me time. And so selfishness ruins that. But then when we think about it too, selfishness ruins good relationships at church. It does. Selfishness is what stops me from getting up in the morning to get to church because I want more sleep. Selfishness is what stops me from going to growth group or youth group because I've got other things on that I'd rather do. Selfishness is what stops me from investing in people. Investing my life in people. Selfishness is what stops me from having people over because I want that time to myself. Selfishness is what stops me from praying properly for people. Selfishness is what ruins our relationship at church. It ruins good relationships. And so when we think about it, Psalm 133 isn't our experience of church because of me, because I'm selfish because I put myself first at every turn that's why this church doesn't always feel good and holy and refreshing because I am selfish but as Psalm 51 showed us a few weeks ago it's not just me we're all selfish we all come here putting ourselves first and so what hope is there to get to Psalm 133? What hope is there to have the joy, the unity, the goodness, the refreshing nature of Psalm 133? I mean, is church just all about how broken people meet with broken people to remind each other how broken we are? Is that all we do here on a Sunday morning? Just go, well, you're selfish, I'm selfish. Let's leave and we'll do this again next week. What hope do we have if that's all we've got? What hope do we have if I'm deeply selfish? The only hope we have is if we stop looking horizontally, is if we stop trying to fix the problem with other people, stop trying to fix the problem, to to just pretend like we're going okay. The only hope that we have is if we go vertical. So I'm the youngest of four kids, three older brothers, and for most of my life, they were faster than me, stronger than me, and smarter than me. And it was their God-given right to bully me, like not in a bad way, but just in kind of the youngest child kind of way. And uh, I can just remember uh, this happening to me. Like nothing to write home about, nothing to you know report my parents about. They were great, but but just you know the classic older brother things. And so I remember we used to have an above ground pool. Remember those days? And uh, would go for a swim in an above ground pool. And we'd go like our brothers would all, we'd all go in together. But then I'd be the last one out because I don't know I'm the youngest. And so as I'd finally decided that I wanted to get out, I'd go and sort of grab up, like, try and get out of this, and my brothers would just pull my hands back and chuck me back in. And so I'd just have swims for four, five, six hours. No, it wasn't that bad, and I could touch the bottom, so it wasn't, like, it wasn't dangerous. It's just probably the reason I hate pools. But I learned very early on, like most youngest children, we are not as dumb as we look, and I learned very early on that to fix the problem you got to go to mum and dad, right? Now, I knew what my brothers would say. Dobbers wear nappies. I knew that. I didn't care. I knew that they'd say, if you tell mum and dad, I'm going to beat you. Like, just didn't matter to me because I knew that if I went to mum and dad, they would fix the problem. You don't try and cut a deal with your brothers. You don't try and cut a deal with your brothers as they're sitting on you. No, you know, you go above them. You go to mum and dad. You don't go horizontal. You go vertical to fix the problem. We think about our own selfishness. My own selfishness. We don't fix the problem by going horizontal. We fix the problem by going vertical. We fix the problem of my selfishness, of my sin, by going to God. And so Paul Tripp, in his book, he, he says this this is his quote that he talks about this uh, when he talks about this. He says, "What this means is you don't fix a marriage, but insert any kind of relationship there. Insert friendships, church, work, anything. You don't fix it first horizontally, you fix it vertically. It's only when we have confessed our lack of love for God, his plan, his purpose, and his call. And it is only when we admit that we have replaced his agenda for us with our selfish agenda, that we will then be free to begin to love one another in the way that his grace makes possible. Can you see what he's saying there? Saying that to fix the problem of selfishness, we don't just work harder, right? We don't just pretend like we're selfless. I mean, we do get good at this, but we're just masking the problem, right? So I talked a few weeks ago about the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. If you've read that book, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The whole book is about pretending to be selfless so people like you. It's, a sel- it's from selfish motives. We get good at this. We get good at masking our problems, but ultimately that's never going to deal with the problem within me. And we get good at picking up on the problems with other people, but that's never going to fix the real problems of my selfishness. To fix the problem of my selfishness, I have to go to God. I have to look up. I have to go vertically. See, we saw in week two of this series how in Psalm 51, we are deeply sinful, but Jesus went to the cross to pay the price. He went to the cross to absorb the cost for our sin. He didn't have to. He shouldn't have. But he did. Out of love for us, he died on the cross to fix our brokenness. But Jesus didn't just die on the cross to fix our sin, to fix the brokenness, to pay the price. Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sin, but then to free us from our sin. And so what happens is, as we become a Christian, we turn to God. Right, we do. We turn to Jesus. We say, I've been living my own life. I need to come to Jesus. We do that in a big way. But as Christians, we continually do that. We continually, over and over and over again, turn to Jesus to deal with our selfish hearts. And as we do, as we come to Jesus and say, I've been selfish, I've loved selfishly, I've been," and we lay it at the foot of the cross, His grace in us enables us to live and love selflessly. As we look to God's love for us, we are enabled and equipped to love other people selflessly. For the first time in our lives, we can do that finally. And so to fix the problem within, the problem of my selfishness, we have to look up. We have to. There's no other way to do it. And once we look up, then it enables us to look out and love other people properly. This is how we can get a hold of Psalm 133. This is how we can live in unity. We can enjoy the goodness, the pleasantness, the refreshing nature of church when we lay our selfishness at the foot of the cross. So what does this look like? That's the question, right? What does it look like now if we're all doing that? What does it look like for us to do that, to to live like this, to look vertically and then love horizontally? Well, in the book of Romans, we kind of find the answer to this. Paul in Romans spends 11 chapters telling people to look up, right? That's basically the first 11 chapters. He tells people, he stresses how good it is when we look to Christ to fix our problem of sin. So in chapters 1 to 11 of Romans, we hear all sorts of stuff. We see that I'm broken, I'm sinful, I'm messed up, but in love, God on the cross died for me to fix the problem of sin. And so Paul goes to great lengths in chapter 1 to 11 to stress how he's saying, look up, look vertically. That's the only way to fix the problem of sin. But then in chapter 12, things change. It starts to change. He starts to say how what it looks like after we look up to love horizontally. And in chapter 12 of Romans, this is what he says. In chapter 12, verse 3, he starts by saying this. For, the, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. See what he says? He said, don't think selfishly, right? You're not the only one on the team. Don't think selfishly. Think of yourself in sober judgment. And then he goes to this picture of like where the body. And so he says, you're not all hands. You're not all feet. We're, we're all a part of the body. And we all have different roles to play. What are those roles? Well, this is what he says in Romans 12, verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is, is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. After 11 chapters of telling people to look up, now he's saying to look out. Now he's saying something's changed within us, right? Look to Christ to deal with the problem of sin, but it changes how we act. And what Paul's really saying here is that he's basically saying two things. The first thing he's saying is that we're on the same team, right? We are on the same team. So so I love this time of year for a number of reasons. I love this time of year. I love that it's getting colder apart from this morning. When it wasn't that cold, but, but I love that it's getting colder. I love that I love pumpkin soup that you can have at this time of year. I love when you pull your jumper out for that one day a year that you can wear it. I, I love this type of this time of year. But more than any of those things, I love that it's state of origin time. I, I love that you can dust off your maroon jersey, you put it on, and as you put that jersey on, something magical happens. Something magical happens. You are united then with the rest of the state. Right? And so what happens is, I mean, you go to the shops on Origin night, you're wearing a jersey, and all of a sudden you have conversations with people you would never have conversations with. You talk to people you would never talk to, you celebrate the victories of the last 10 years. As you put that jersey on, something changes. Now, I'm sure it's the same for a New South Wales fan. Right? Obviously a few differences, right? Like you can't celebrate really anything. So maybe you just talk about how Greg English should have played for New South Wales and you still haven't let that go. Maybe, right? But something still happens when you pull that jersey on. You're united, you're united. Either way, either team, you're united. What Paul's saying is that we have been given a jersey. We've been given the same color jersey. As Christians, we've been given the same color jersey. And so we are united together. We are united on a level that's deeper than anything else with a thread that's stronger than any others. We are united together. That's what Paul's saying. You're on the same team. But what Paul's saying is different to the state of origin. What Paul's getting at here and what the Bible's saying is different to watching footy on TV. Because what Paul's saying is that this is not a spectator sport. Right? He's not saying you've been given the jersey to wear on a Sunday morning before church. And then as soon as you get home from church, take it off so that you don't have to wash it before the next week. That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is that in a way, we have, we've been passive in this. We've been united by Christ. He's done all the work. But in another way, we've got to live in unity. And so what does he say? Paul says, do what you're good at. He says, if you're a teacher, teach. If you're a leader, govern. Govern. He says, if, you, if you're not, don't. Serve if you are. If you're gifted in serving, then serve. If you're gifted in giving, then give generously. If you're gifted in showing mercy, then do it. What Paul's saying is play the position that you know how to play. He's saying use the gifts that you know how to use. And so if we think about this, I mean, imagine this was happening. Imagine when we rocked up to church, we left our selfishness at the door. We laid it at the foot of the cross. And then as we came in, we did this. Everyone perfectly. Imagine a church like that. Imagine people giving as they can, doing what they can, serving each other, not for me, but for them. Imagine that. That would be good. That would be a holy thing. You wouldn't be able to find that anywhere else. That would be a refreshing thing. Paul says, play your position. Play your role. Now, when we think about that here at Southside, when we think about that, that we need to think about that. I mean, so, so we are growing as a church. If you're new today or visiting, we'd love to have you here. And I'm sure you're looking around, seeing lots of empty seats. But a couple of years ago, we lived in basically the tiniest house. We, we met in the tiniest house. that you Good, we're growing. And as we grow, the needs of our church are going to get greater. That's just the nature of the beast right, the needs are going to get greater. This is what's not going to work at Southside. What's not going to work is if the handful of people that have been serving a few years ago continue to be the only people that serve in the future. It's not going to work. It's great for us because we rock up, everything kind of works, we get our feed and then we go home, but it's not sustainable. It's not going to work, everything's going to fall apart. And it's not acting in line with the New Testament church. Now, I don't think Southside's there yet. But if we keep going, we we might be. We have to be aware of this. This is one of the greatest challenges that we're going to face. And so what Paul's saying here is play your role. And imagine if we grabbed a hold of this. If at Southside we grasp this, and not just 50% of us, but all of us, All of us sitting here today grabbed what Paul's saying here, that we have a role to play, that we are needed, we have a position to fill. And as we lay our selfishness at the door, as we go vertical to deal with our sin, when we come selflessly, loving, horizontally, that would be a great thing. That would be so good as we met together. It would be a holy thing. We couldn't find that anywhere else. It would be a refreshing thing. But it wouldn't just be good for us as a church. It'd be good for me individually. It'd be good for us individually. And so over this series, we've been looking at this pyramid. And in a way, we've been thinking selfishly about it, me in the center. But when we grasp what Paul's saying here, what we can picture is other people in the center. And so all of a sudden, we realize that now we are the church corner. We have a role to play with the people next to us a role to play in this church and that role is to be the best church corner that we can possibly be. Right? Our, our role is not, we're not meant to be the counsellor because we're not counsellors. We're not meant to be the family if we're not family but we are meant to be the church and so it's our job to care for each other. It's good when we take meals over, it's good when we babysit but it's also great and we're also, it's also our job to genuinely care for people. To find out how they're going in their lives. How they're going with their relationship with God and with others. And when that happens, it's the best thing that can happen. Right? The most refreshing times in my life have been here at Southside, at Growth Group, with two or three other people. Right? When I've known that two or three people are praying for me. That they have my back. They're asking me week in, week out how I'm going. If I'm not there, they texted me that is refreshing, that has been good. And really, that's why we run growth groups here at Southside. Right, we don't run them because at church we have this list of things churches need to do. Right, we don't do it to tick off a list. We run growth groups because we know that that's a place where we can be better cared for individually. And so we encourage you to join them, not so that we can have a statistic or you can be a part of a statistic, because we, but because we know that it's better for us to be in small groups, being cared for properly as we as the church play our role, be our corner. And so as we get to the end of this series and we ask the question, what difference does it make? It's really hard to see what difference doesn't it make, right? It makes a difference in every way for me individually and for us as a church. Knowing that I am made in the image of God, that God has fearfully and wonderfully made me, gives me purpose. It gives me worth. It gives me value. Knowing that I'm made for relationships with him and with others, it shows me why I'm here. Knowing that God knows my days, that's life-giving stuff. Knowing that I'm forgiven is, is awesome for me because when I break everything that I touch, God still loves me. He has forgiven me in Jesus. Knowing that I'm not forgotten, when everything goes bad, knowing that God hasn't forgotten me is great for me to know. Knowing that I'm loved in Christ, that in the good and the bad, no matter what happens, he's got my back. And knowing that I'm needed. Here at church, you have a role to play. That's what Paul's saying. And when we can grasp this, when we can grab a hold of this, Psalm 139, 133 can be ours. And we could say with David how good it is, like oil running down a beard, or whatever else we'd say. We could say with David how good and holy it is and refreshing it is. Let's pray that that would happen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you say we are. We thank you that we have been loved, that we have been made fearfully and wonderfully, that we have been forgiven, that we aren't forgotten, that we are needed. We thank you for what that means for us, that that gives us worth and purpose and value. Lord, we ask that this wouldn't just be something that we're reminded of today, but something that changes our lives. We pray that, that we as a church would grasp a hold of how practical the gospel is, the good news of Jesus, that we would continue to look vertically. And as we do, that we would love people horizontally. We ask that you would keep our eyes fixed on him who laid his life down for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.